Good morning. Congratulations. I'm so excited for you. I certainly know what it's like to have waited and worked and been weary in the process. It resonates so much with what Paul says in Galatians when he says not to be weary in well-doing. I think probably for all of us, it's not just getting weary in well-doing, but weary of well-doing. But I, I rejoice with you, and I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm just a little bit wrecked. Uh, Barbara got that. Um, started with uh, the song that we sang about the ineffable nature of the creation of the universe. I remember the first time I heard that and I saw the video that accompanied it. And um, everywhere from the diversity of faces across the planet to the most minuscule parts of his creation. And all of that, of course, came just with his breath. You know, there are a lot of words that are loosely used these days. Awesome, amazing. And I, I don't mean to chide anyone for that. But we all just sort of have watered those words down, in my opinion. There are very few things that are worthy of the adjective awesome or amazing. But that truly is amazing, isn't it? That to think that every morning as we would seek to describe it, that he deadlifts, deadlifts the massive mountains and he gathers up the seven seas and delicately controls the tides. <laughs> Again, I'll tell you, I'm just a little wrecked, but I make no apology for that. I know how I've been there, done that. I've been doing this for 41 years. And so I understand the craft of communication. I understand the craft of sometimes cleverly uh, putting together a message. I, I didn't come for that. I, I, there were so many things washing over me during the worship as I looked up here on the platform and I thought about the inheritance of Bishop Tony Button. A man that I was only privileged to know for a short period of time. That's the only major issue that I have with him. He didn't stay here long enough for me to get to really know him. But I've come to know him through you. And you may think that I'm doing violence to the, to the passage that talks about that we're encompassed about by a great cloud of witnesses. As we run our race with patience, the one that is set before us, that we're amphitheatered about. This is the words of the author of Hebrews as he's seeking, he's groping, it seems, for words to try to describe that we are not made perfect without them. We're, we're not complete without them. This month makes six years ago that my father 
transitioned into the greatest realm of reality because this is not reality as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I watched this man who was once robust, who had a fertile mind and had so much truth at just at his beck and command, I watched him wither away. And for many people, we've determined that they have a certain shelf life, a, an expiration date. But I stand here today because of him. I know it's been overused and misused that their ceiling was our floor, but it's certainly true. What I'm witnessing here is the exponential nature of the generational impartation. I hope that doesn't just sound like, you know, my attempt to string together words that lack meaning, but um, I kept looking up in the balcony, especially when I think about being encompassed about by a cloud of witnesses, and I'm thinking, oh, the smile that must be on this man's face. As he looks at his children and his children's children, Barbara, he ran the race with patience that was set before him. He's much closer than we think. He's not up there, out there. He's not somewhere beyond the realm of our experience. I believe that he's with us, with us this morning. Amen. <clears throat> How many of you were here at the very beginning? What was it, 40? He started preaching. Okay. And, well, I know, Barbara, you were there at the beginning. <laughs> Gravitate, as most people in my position do, to all the passages of Scripture that uh, give us great and vivid detail of these various edifices that were consecrated with the subsequent hope of a habitation. You all know them well, the usual suspects, the tabernacle of Moses, the grandfather clause of all scripture, understanding that, as the writer of Hebrews said, that we are to notice the patterns and the principles of the tabernacle. Of course, in Exodus, I'm not sure Moses was adept enough to really describe what happened whenever everything was completed and the pieces of furniture were meticulously put in place. And then there comes almost an explosion from this very confined space we refer to as the Holy of Holies. You know, the sound of the tabernacle was described as that of a man breathing because the curtains would expand and contract. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord because he gave us that breath. He took the first breath on this planet. It was not a man named Adam, but he took the first breath, unconditional love. <laughs> resuscitated everything in his creation. And what it must have been like, what a palpable moment 
that Moses seeks to describe, or we can look at the Temple of Solomon. I mean, there's so many different references. The Temple of Solomon, ornate beyond description, and the sacrifice that was made, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And those were memorable days, to say the least. But I've chosen to um, go to Psalm 118. And I'm going to do something that um, would be considered by most to be the death of good preaching. I'm going to read 28 verses. <laughs> and I'm going to read 28 verses because I think it's important for context and it's important uh, for us to get to the heartthrob of what is happening in Psalm 118. Are, are you ready to endure this lengthy reading? I set you up for it. His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. I pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me, and the Lord is my strength and my song and my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of righteousness. I'm so thankful that truth is timeless, and no matter how poetic or what the prose is, it's still powerful, isn't it? You know, I was reminded just pa this past week about, and I, I don't mean to be picky here about this, but sometimes I think we do a disservice to the scripture itself by reading it silently. We have to give voice to it. In fact, in the ancient world, they had no concept of reading silently. It was almost irreverent to read his word in such a manner. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, I, but I shall live and recount the deeds. That's important. Recount the deeds of the Lord. Time is a strange thing, isn't it? because years ago can seem like yesterday and yesterday can seem like years ago. 
what an enigma, what a conundrum that is, but you know what I'm talking about. And so he, he emphasizes the importance of recounting the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me, and I'm getting to the part that I feel to talk to you about. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm going to finish it. I was going to stop there. <laughs> Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For and here he comes full circle to how he started. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let us all say amen to that. It is the words found in the heart of this psalm. And some have noted that this particular psalm is in the center of Scripture. It is, it is that hinge point. And I've chosen to highlight the statement that David makes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Unfortunately, we charismatics in our glib usage of that declaration have watered it down. And we just very glibly say, especially when we're trying to invite people to be engaged in worship, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I think that we have lost touch with its original essence and what it really meant. There is something that is personal here to David. And when he talks about this particular day, there is a lot of speculations as to when this, this occurred, when he wrote these words in his journal of sorts. The Psalms, many of the Psalms that are attributed to him are essentially just his journaling. I'm not sure he had any idea whatsoever that what he committed to parchment would find its way in the greater body of the collection of scripture. It was just him trying to sort through, trying to make sense of his journey. That's probably why the Psalms are more read than any other part of biblical literature. And so again, there's some speculation as to the events that surround this. I personally believe that this came on a, in a, at a watershed moment, at a seminal moment in David's life. It occurred the day the cross-reference would have been found in 2 Samuel 6, whenever he is rejoicing over returning the ark, the centerpiece of God's glory. 
Now, you would think as he is looking back over his life that there were many days that were defining in nature, defining moments. There are many days that would have marked his memory forever. How about the day that he receives word that his father has summoned him to come back to the house and he leaves the field and the sheep a bit bewildered as to, because he doesn't know that while, while he's out tending his father's sheep, that this legendary prophet by the name of Samuel has come to his lowly estate, has come to his house. And when he approaches, if you allow me to envision it for you, as he approaches his home, he sees all of his brothers, his elder brothers, and they're lined up with a dejected look on their face. And he probably thinks, is that who I think it is? Is that Samuel? I've heard of him. What is he doing at our house? And why does he have that horn of oil in his hand? What is going on here? He's still pulling straw out of his hair. He's still self-conscious about the, the stench of sheep and the dung impacted on his sandals. He's looking and wondering, what is this all about? He didn't know that what was ready getting, getting ready to unfold would change his life forever. To say that it was epic is an understatement. What would happen? This is a day in David's life. I mean, he's still 13 or 14 years old. He doesn't know that his whole world's going to change. He hasn't started shaving yet. He's of ruddy face, the Bible says, and his voice hadn't dropped into its lower register. He's just a boy. As he scans and looks at his seven brothers, and Samuel turns, turns toward him with those deep set eyes, and he opens the horn of oil, the equivalent of five quarts he's going to pour on this little boy's head. And as it drips down off his chin and onto his tunic and starts dripping from the hem of his garment on his sandals, he hears this prophet begin to speak of his future and his destiny. Surely that must have been the greatest day in his life. Or maybe there are other days that had marked him so, such as when he is being pursued by this maniacal king, Saul who was obsessed with insecurity and jealousy, and he pursues him, hunts him like an animal. He remembers because he recorded it in Psalm 42, and he said, as the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul longeth for thee. Allow me the liberty. I think that probably what David wrote in that moment was as the result of him hearing the bloodhounds that were on his scent and he's running through the wilderness trying to get away from Saul. And he finally comes to a place where he can quench his thirst and as he bends over into the brook and he's siphoning water as quickly as he can and his heart is pounding almost out of his chest. He looks over and he sees a deer, a heart that thinks that they're after him and not after David would cause him to write in such beautiful prose as 
the heart longeth for the water but so my soul longeth. That was a day. There are many days in David's life that we could talk about. We could talk about, of course, that moment when he, with boldness and defiance, stands up against this behemoth, Goliath, when everybody else is trembling. And he stands there and he watches this gargantuan of a man fall to the ground. And then there are songs written about him. That, that must have been a day in his life the most memorable day. Those, those were days, but they were not the day. Are you still with me? Because as you sweep back over your memory, as you recount, as I pointed out, what David said, as you recount and you try to make sense, I, I love what Philip Yancey said, I probably have said it in previous visits here about faith, that faith is trusting that what doesn't make sense now will in reverse. So as his mind sweeps back over all the years, as I mentioned to you in 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is, I believe, the companion text to all of this because the ark had been in captivity. You know, when I talk about the ark, I'm not just talking about a three by four box that contained you know, the tables of the law and, and the manna uh, that would not be spoiled and, the, and Aaron's rod that budded. I'm, I'm talking about what resided upon it, not just what was in it. And it was the glory of God, the very manifest presence of God. And he was jealous for that, wasn't he? And it had been in captivity for over a hundred years. And then when he brings it back, You remember the scene, don't you? This man strips himself of his regal robes down to his ephod. And the language that he uses here, again, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's mirrored in what happened in that moment because he loses his freaking mind. I think now you're paying attention. He loses his mind. He gets rowdy. <laughs> he understood that before he was ever a king, what a moment that must have been when he was in his coronation, when he's crowned king and he, he unites the northern and the southern kingdom, something that had been you know, a, a problem of civil war for a long time. That wasn't, a, that wasn't the day though, it's this day, this particular day, because all that mattered to him was the glory of God. The accolades of men, the songs that had been written about him, oh, the songs that had been written about him, the accolades of men, all of those things that he would be legendary for meant nothing to him. It was all about the glory of God. And it still is about the glory of God. And he dances before the Lord with all of his might. And you know the story well, Miguel, his wife, she looks at him and this is, I, I saw this years ago and it struck me because there were a lot of people that had bought a ticket to the drama of my life 
and were speculating and critiquing why certain things had happened to me because they only saw me in that moment. And she's looking through a window. And you remember how embarrassed she was. She was mortified that he would act so undignified, absolutely mortified. But she was looking out a window. And to me, that speaks volumes. You see, she had a limited perspective of what was happening in that singular moment in David's life. She didn't understand. This didn't compute with her. She didn't understand. Why is he acting that way? The reason why, again, is because she was looking through this narrow perspective at him, as many people do with us, because she wasn't there when he faced the lion and the bear. She was not, are you with me here this morning? She was not there when he stood before Goliath. She was not there when he was holed up in a cave, the cave of Adullam. She wasn't there. So when you decide that you want to have an opinion about why I get loud and rowdy and I rejoice in an undignified way, you weren't there. You weren't there when I was in a dark place. You weren't there. You weren't there. That's why he would say, this is the day. This is the day. This is why I was even born. It was not to be a king. Come on, somebody. It was not to be a warrior, a brave heart of the Old Testament. It was not so that you could admire the gleaming shields that align my palace. No, no, no. It was for this day. everything generationally, everything that has unfolded up until this moment, it has been for this day. Because before this land was ever graded, I'm almost done, believe it or not. Before this land was ever graded, before it was ever purchased and graded, before there were elevations that were determined for a building, before the, the materials were delivered here, God had decided that there would be a day and time. It just happened to come in 2019 when those that would inherit it fully into their inheritance. I think that's right. You know, David waxed prophetic whenever he begins to talk about the stone that the builders reject. I mean, he sees something. He gets a glimpse. He, I mean, he's reaching back and he's in the moment, yet he is seeing prophetically. I mean, do, do you realize that this is the psalm? Remember when Jesus goes out and he, he act after the supper and he sings a psalm or a hymn, this is the one he's singing. 
know that this speaks of Jesus. Isaiah 28 speaks of it. First Peter speaks of it, that he is the chief cornerstone. And I've always been interested that a lot of scholars, you know, they debate over whether or not this word is the cornerstone, you know, the stone that is laid first by which everything else and being and building, you understand this all too well. But whether it's that metron that is used to create everything else in its symmetry, and there are others that say, no, it was the capstone. I won't bore you with a lot of detail here, but of course, in the building of the temple, you know, in the building of Solomon's temple to be exact, remember the Lord, and I love this, and there's so many men in ministry today that uh, are sweating to try to accomplish God's purposes when his house is built in rest. Because remember, he told Solomon, he said, I don't want to hear the sound of a hammer or a saw or a chisel or anything on that site. So they go out to a quarry, and there they begin to shape these massive stones that weigh 50 to 100 tons. They fashion them, they lay them in place after the cornerstone. Are you guys still with me? After the cornerstone is put in place. It all comes together, doesn't it? The, the marvel, the absolute marvel of that. Uh, I'm not sure that engineers and architects even today can understand how they pull that off. But when everything, when all the pieces came together, not even the need for mortar. Again, but some would say, well, he is the cornerstone, but no, he's the capstone. Hey, let's don't, let's don't be masters at missing the point. Let's just realize that he is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He started it all and he finishes it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And while this building is wonderful, when I walked in, my heart just swelled with excitement for you. Why wow, this building is wonderful and it will get even more wonderful in time because I see it filled, not just with people, but with glory. You make sure that the glory is here. You don't have to worry about getting people in seats because wherever Jesus was, there was not enough room for anybody to even sit down. In the same way the glory of God so filled, the density of the kabod came so powerfully into the temple that the priest could not stand up. 120 priests raised up silver trumpets, 120 of them. It almost looks like Pentecost, doesn't it? And suddenly God was there, ambushing them with his power and his presence. Maybe that's why Peter would say, you know, because he was obsessed with building something for God. Remember, in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear in the Lord speaking to him concerning his death. Hey, I got an idea. <laughs> Let's build three tabernacles. 
Finally, he got it later in his writings. He says that we are lively stones that are built into a holy habitation. He began to get it. He began to see that God's structure, that God's order was far beyond what he understood. I think that's why David said that it, all the days in his life were totally transcended by this particular day. Eclipsed them all. Years ago, I was uh, in Stone Mountain, Georgia. You ever been to Stone Mountain, Georgia? I mean, it is a um, topographical and geographical anomaly. I've seen it many times flying in out of Atlanta. It's like it doesn't belong there, if you've ever seen it. This southern city, this mass, you know, Stone Mountain. And I went with uh, one of my sons on a field trip. And um, I remember watching a light show that they did, a laser light show on the side, on the face of the mountain. And if you've seen, if you've seen the mountain, the mountain has three Confederate generals that are carved into the face of that mountain, astride their horses. And I was intrigued by this, and I began to do some research, and I discovered how many years it took, many years for this, as men repelled off the side of the mountain with jackhammers, uh, creating this monument. But this was something that really caught my attention. It said that they had to go through 40 feet of dead stone. Dead stone. What is dead stone? Well, see, this is stone that had been weathered over time and did not have the integrity to support the monument. So they had to get through all of the dead stone till they got to live stone. You know, in the, in the ancient world of masonry, whenever stones were brought to a site, you know, they would, they'd pick them up and with their trowel, they would strike it and shape it. And it was not until the trowel had a certain resonance, had a certain ring to it, that they knew that it would bear the weight. And you, some of you wondering why all this rambling about that, because it's certainly true, isn't it, that there have been some that didn't belong. And God, in his efforts to try to build something here, he began, would you go ahead and stand with me? He began to shave those things away that were unnecessary because he understood the weight of his glory could not be born under that which is superficial. Amen. So I declare to you, this is not just any day, a day among days. This is the day. And it probably doesn't fit with the melodic mood that we're in right now, but I want us to sing it to the top of our lungs, the old charismatic song. <laughs> oh, listen to that. Listen to those simple chords. Oh my gosh. Can this be our declaration? This is the day. This is the day that the Lord hath, that the Lord. Come on, everybody sing. I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad, and be glad. Oh, 
This is the day that the Lord hath made. Wait, this is lackluster. I am not convinced. It really is the day. God's been waiting on you to get to this point. So let's sing it. Let's look at one another and sing it. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord. Come on now. That the Lord. Yeah, clap your hands. I will rejoice. I will rejoice and be glad. Come on now, reach deep. This is the day that the Lord has been. I will rejoice and be glad. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has been. One more time. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. It's a blast from the past, for sure. <sighs> Father, your love endures forever. Your mercy reaches to the skies. Lord, like Solomon who stood before the altar in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O oh Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept, you have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. <laughs> I believe the same thing is true here. It fits perfectly here. He has kept his word. He's kept the covenant that he made with your father, Josh. And with your hand, you have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before you on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed. 
Come on, everybody say it. Let your word be confirmed. Let your word be confirmed. And we rest in it. We rest in it. And at the finish of this, of course, the glory of God came in a way that was epic in nature. And I ask for that in the days to come, Lord. I ask for such favor. I ask, Lord, that when people drive by, I ask that there will be people, Lord, on the interstate that will be compelled to get off on the exit that leads to this place. Anybody going to agree with me on that? I ask, Lord, that people that are in need of deliverance and healing for their bodies, the restoration of their minds, that they will, in an uncontrolled manner, find themselves just driving up in the parking lot. Lord, like Ezekiel's vision, I ask that the water that is generated, the presence that is generated here would spill out beyond the threshold of this building and it would flow to the lowest places, Lord. And people like the fish in that vision would swim upstream to find its source. Prophecy has been given to you, right? That statesful will be synonymous with his glory. We all add our agreement to that. Let it start here in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we clap? You know, the Bible says, clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Come on. Yeah, I'm not trying to hype you up. We should just go ahead. Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Yeah. Come on now. Listen, you know you're not just applauding, don't you? This is the Old Testament means of deriding our enemies. With every strike of the hand, we're jolting the jaw of our accuser, shutting his mouth. Amen. 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 Well, thank you for letting me ramble around, and thank you for letting me be myself. <laughs> Thinking about Sly and the Family Stone now. I just want to thank you for letting me. Yeah, I'll, I won't do that. <laughs> bless you. Sure love you. Happy for you. And proud of you more than you could ever know.